The Leslie Marshall Show, the only true democracy in talk radio, of, for, and by you, the people. Live nationwide and streaming live at LeslieMarshallShow.com. Call in with your thoughts at 888-6-LESLIE. set you free. I'm Leslie Marshall. How you doing? Happy Tuesday. Welcome or welcome back. Only true democracy and talk. Before we get to our guest, we want to share with you some breaking news. The jury in the E. Jean Carroll civil trial against Donald Trump has found that they did not prove Donald Trump raped her. However, they so if they found Donald Trump not guilty of rape, but they found him guilty of sexual abuse and sexual assault and awarded Ms. Carroll $2 million. So some people would say this is in favor of Trump. No, it clearly isn't. They did clearly um, award her $2 million and they believe she was abused. They believe she was sexually assaulted. They didn't say they don't believe she was raped. They say the evidence did not prove uh, that he raped her. Uh, so that is uh, breaking news in the E. Jean Carroll civil trial. Donald Trump has to, according to the jury, uh, uh, pay her as it was awarded uh, to Ms. Carroll $2 million, uh, stating that Donald Trump sexually abused and sexually assaulted her. He was found guilty of the heavier uh, charge in this civil trial of rape. Joining us in this hour on a very different note uh, is Scott Paul. Scott is president of the Alliance for American Manufacturing. They are a partnership established by some of America's leading manufacturers and the United Steelworkers Union. And for almost two decades, Scott and the AAM have worked to make American manufacturing a top of mind issue for voters and our national leaders. They've done it through effective advocacy, innovative research and a savvy PR strategy please go to the website. It is a plethora of information that is helpful to you, whether you work in manufacturing or not. If you are a taxpayer, which most everybody who is watching and listening to this program is, go to AmericanManufacturing.org. Follow them on Twitter at Keep It Made in USA and find out how you can purchase USA products there as well. And, and follow Scott at Scott Paul. AAM. Hi, Scott. Thank you for joining us today. Really appreciate you uh, being with us uh, on the program this afternoon. Of course, Leslie. Great to be with you. Thank you for having me on. Now, I have a teenage daughter, and she and a lot of her teenage friends are very tempted when they see on TikTok really cheap stuff, which we know is going to fall apart before one wash, right? Um, I don't know. Do they pronounce it sheen or do they pronounce it shine? It's sheen, S-H-E-I-N. She okay, uh, because I've heard both. Uh, members of Congress continue to raise concerns about Chinese companies, um, and uh, Sheen is one of them. A lot of people are are familiar with uh, Temu is another one, or Timu. Uh, they are alleged of using forced labor, uh, and now leaders of a key congressional committee are looking into allegations surrounding big brands, which we heard of. If people haven't heard of Sheen, or is it Temu or Timu? Um, mm -hmm. And uh, Western brands, Nike, 
Adidas, right? Or Adidas, as they say uh, overseas. Um, and you have people on both sides of the aisle. You have on the right, Republican from Wisconsin, Congressman Mike Gallagher. You have on the left, um, Congressman Raja Krishnamurthy, a Democrat from Illinois, and the chairman and ranking member of the select committee on the Chinese Communist Party, the CCP, has sent letters earlier this week to four companies citing concerns about their use of forced labor uh, to make their products. Now, the members wrote to each company that they heard testimony during the hearing that was just a couple of months ago in March that suggests the brands are still importing and sourcing products uh, from uh, Xinjiang, uh, despite implementation of the Uyghur Forced Labor Prevention Act, UFLPA. And that law went into effect in June of 2022, last year, banning imports from the Chinese region unless companies can definitely prove their products are not made with forced labor. So my daughter got a gift from this company, Sheen, right? All of her girlfriends had this top. She wanted this top. I'm like, I'm not going to buy that. Um, I think it's crap. You're going to see it's crap, you know, and we got it. It was crap. Honestly, when you held, I swear to God, this paper had more substance than, you know, the item that was purchased for her. Um, and, you know, just by looking at it and how fast it was put together, that there's got to be, you know, slave, if you will, labor, right? Servant labor, perhaps child labor. When you look at, you know, some of the, th- you know, the threading and, and, and so small. Um, so wh- let, let's just talk about a lot of things. Yeah. I understand every company, every company, my company, your company. We got to watch our bottom line. I get yeah. it. But why would companies like Nike, why would companies like Adidas, when people are more about making it, make it in America, buy it in America. And if you're not going to buy it in America, Don't buy it where people are being forced to work, are being treated like slaves or servants or being abused or there's child labor. Why would these big companies continue to do it, Scott, or even risk it? Yeah, yeah, it's a a good question. And I hope the CEOs do respond to um, the uh, congressional committee leaders and tell them why, because I think that's I think that's an important question. Clearly, some of this is driven by the need to make profit margins and, you know, uh, pressure from investors and shareholders. But it certainly doesn't mean those pressures that a company needs to resort to a supply chain and production practices that uh, could be exploitative um, at best and really, really damaging and, and potentially run counter to the law at worst. And so I and, and here here is the here's the issue. And, and Leslie, you just unpacked a lot of this. I mean, clothing in particular, very superficial. I mean, people look at it and they're like, well, this is what I, you know, very few people think about, well, what is this made of? How long it's going to last? How was it made even or who's making it? Who's making the money? off of this. And so you don't get that uh, kind of rigorous research into the production methods or whatever. I mean, people people tend to care more about like food. Uh, and, and I find this to be totally true. Pet food in particular, you care about every little bit that's going yeah. into your pet. <laughs> you, but you, you know make- what else they do, Scott? I can say yeah. this as a woman. 
Okay. Yeah. Because, oh God, I can't believe, you know, um, and being on TV, I'm judged heavily for how I look. I gain a pound. My hair is an inch longer. Um, you know, my face is puffy. Even my own mother, God, love you, Dorothy. But, you know, she'll be like, your face looks so puffy the other day. Uh, and I know that the guys I aren't TV. Leslie, for the record. I'm sorry. I don't agree with her, Leslie, for the record. Oh, okay. I guess out of sending you the video she was talking about, I have to agree with her. Um, you know, but you know, people, you know, don't understand. It's sort of like I'll fly from Los Angeles overnight, get in the next day, and it's sort of like, well, I'm puffy because my body's all screwed up, or because of yeah. hormones, or because I'm getting older, or because I had salt in that bag of chips, or even if I have a healthy salad, the dress, whatever. Mm -hmm. My point being. When you look at these ads, because I see them, okay? Yeah. I'm not watching TikTok. It pops up on Facebook. TikTok pops up right. on Facebook. Right. Right. Uh, their videos do. Mm -hmm. right? I saw one today. I, I, I swear to God, I got my hair done earlier today, and I saw one. And this girl is in her 20s. She's wearing a huge tie-dye T-shirt. And it's like, ladies, you have got to get this. Uh, you know, this bodysuit, it just makes you look great. And then they show her in it and and you want to click it because you think if I could look that good, I'm getting that body. The yeah. problem is that woman's going to look that good in anything because she's got a rocking body and she's 20 something. And by the way, when I was 20 something, I had a rocking body, you know, but I'm, I'm just saying, and yeah. not just women, I mean, men, right? Sure. You see, oh God, this will give me hair. You know, it's it's purple potatoes, you know? Yeah. So there's so much lying, especially yeah. from China. Yeah. And, and, and they really are selling a, you know, they're selling the snake oil and people are buying it. I mean, I see all these things. Oprah ate these gummies and lost all this weight or featured on Shark Tank. And then you go to Shark Tank and it wasn't featured. I mean, they just lie. They take yeah. like, yeah, you know what I mean? Right. People could take a picture of you and I right now and say Scott and Leslie endorse Sheen. They yeah. say it's the great, right, the greatest yeah. product ever. And I think the especially these teenagers are getting uh, sucked yeah. into this big yeah. time. And it's yeah. cheap. It's so cheap. Yeah. And the reason it's so cheap is because they're abusing the people making That's it. That's right. We're going we're gonna to take yeah. a break. I'm sorry I took up so much time. When we come back, I'll shut up because I want you to talk about this. I want to talk about a lot of stuff, including de minimis exemption. Um, I know there were questions to these two companies about that. I'm Leslie Marshall. Scott Paul, who's president of the AAM, is our guest. We'll be back with him. We'll be back with you right after this. In the meantime, I'm going to ask Scott if we are somewhat responsible. Yeah, we are. Because if you're buying yourself or these or, or your kids this crap, you're contributing to the problem. Go to AmericanManufacturing.org. Follow on Twitter at Keep It Made in USA and follow Scott at Scott Paul AAM. Find out some great American companies with American-made products right here in the U.S. We'll be back. We are back. We are Leslie Marshall and Scott Paul. Scott is president of the Alliance for American Manufacturing, the AAM. Please check out their website, AmericanManufacturing.org. Follow them on Twitter at Keep It Made in USA and follow Scott at Scott Paul AAM. We're talking about pressure from Congress on companies like Sheen and Temu, uh, also Nike and Adidas. Um, and we'll continue. Um, Scott, one of the things I mentioned before the break is... And these are things that two congressmen left and right have asked these companies, Sheen and Temu, about uh, and their use of the de minimis exemption. Uh, talk to us about this. Yeah. This, is, this is allowing imports valued under a certain dollar amount, $800, to enter the U.S. duty-free, right? Yeah. So talk to us about this and 
this exemption? I mean, why do we hear have this? You know, where does this come from? And you know, how does this play in in this current situation? Um, because as you know, there are many, including the White House, that would like to ban TikTok altogether. Yeah, that's and right. these are companies that certainly use TikTok to, uh, you know, to um, advertise yeah. their products and to sell yeah, them. Right. Yeah. I mean, you pointed this out. They all feed on each other. And I think regularly, you know, four of the top five apps that are downloaded on the App Store are these Chinese apps, are Xi'an, are Timu, and uh, TikTok. And, and so it should be a concern because there's a lot of consumption of all of this. So we need to think about what the consequences are, uh, what the market consequences are, what the social, psychological consequences and, and moral and ethical uh, as well. And so de minimis, anytime you hear that, it's like it's a Latin term. What does it mean? <laughs> and, it, and, and, and for most people, the only contact they're going to have with this is like if you've traveled overseas and you're coming back and you used to have to fill out a customs declaration, like how much stuff are you bringing back? You had to kind of total it up. And if it's below a threshold, $800, you don't have to pay any duties on it. If it's above that, you might have to pay some duties on it. Well, that's the de minimis threshold, that $800. But what has happened here is that she and Timu, they're certainly not tourists, right? They're certainly not people coming back to the United States, but they've been able to exploit this loophole by shipping directly to people and not through a retail store or a wholesaler or anything like that uh, and utilizing this loopholes to, to avoid duties. Uh, and, and by so, the way, so, sorry to interrupt. So question, yeah. question, even if you send directly to me, right, because- yeah. I mean, I think we've all tried to buy a, a medication from Canada, right? Guilty. Um, and uh, they and for my mom, and they seized it. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. So um, can't the U.S. Customs and Border uh, Protection, the CBP, yeah. um, you know, uh, inter, you know, it, you know, intercept yeah. anything that's sent to us by these companies like Sheen? Or no, can they not? Because what you and I are ordering is under eight hundred dollars. You know, not that you and I would order for them. I'm saying, yeah, that's the right. I mean, they're 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 far less likely to be subject to any sort of random inspection, much less some uh, inspection that they're obligated to have. And this is important. And and you touched on this uh, in the first part, is because a lot of what Xi'an and Timu are selling are apparel, and if it's Chinese-made apparel there's a reasonable chance that some of the cotton or some of it was done in this Xinjiang region where there is documented slave labor, where there is what we call a genocide happening against the Uyghur people. And there's a law into place called the Uyghur Forced Labor Prevention Act that is that says basically we're, we're presupposing that anything coming from this region is made with uh, forced labor and we're excluding it from the U.S. market. And so theoretically, this is a workaround. Right. For that, because it's not going to be inspected. It's not going to be subject to any of this. So Xi'an and Timu not only are evading the duties, uh, the, the, the tariffs that other companies have to pay when they're retailers, like, for instance, if there's an American retailer like Walmart that's bringing stuff from China, um, you know, we, I, which I don't like anyway, but they do have to pay a duty on it and is, is subject to inspection. But this stuff coming from Xi'an or Timu, absolutely not. And so that raises a lot of questions, both, again, about the, the, the consequences this is having for the Uyghur people, uh, as well as for fair competition and abiding by a law, a law, by the way, uh, that passed the Congress virtually unanimously. Uh, right. and 
had the support of like both Trump and Biden, who signed it into law, and, and virtually every every member of Congress. And there's been plenty of pressure as well, um, you know, uh, members of Congress on both sides of the aisle asking the SEC, the Securities and Exchange Commission, to actually halt uh, these companies, um, you know, like Timu and uh, like uh, Sheen from seeking initial public offering, you know, IPO. And um, to your point, what I like here is not only is this bipartisan, you know, everybody's on board with this, but they're not afraid um, to go back to um, they're not afraid to go after Nike and Adidas. This isn't just China bad. This yeah. isn't just Sheen and Timu. These are big American companies like Nike and Adidas. It's it, 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 you know, which is a very nice. No one's above the law kind of thing. Right. Yeah, and I think all of those companies need to answer the questions that are being asked of them. This this is one of the situations we've found ourselves in with respect to. The, uh, the Chinese Communist Party and leverage is that these big global brands so rely on production in China that they want to be quiet about all of these other issues. And so having some light shed on this by lawmakers is, I think, important. And just going back to the other thing of this, it's like the Chinese apps in particular are very, very popular. TikTok, Xi and Timu. So these are not like side issues. These are major issues because there are millions and millions of American teenagers that are consuming this stuff. Yep. And so there are data concerns, there are concerns about like the ethics of how these clothing. And and, and the thing is, you know, yeah, you, you look on it, it's like, this is a great look and it's impossibly cheap and it will show up in my door in just a couple of days. What could be better than that, right? If you're a teenager. So it is this, it's this cycle that is going to have very harmful effects uh, for uh, the way in which uh, companies that are playing by the rules uh, are, 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 um, are, are experiencing, uh, as well as uh, how, how it's impacting, again, like our purchasing and, and if our purchases are being- You must have read my mind here, Scott, because you can't see my notes. I was going to ask you, I mean, Nike lobbied against the UFLPA. Yeah. It was passed- yeah. Now there's accusations and allegations that they're violating this very law that they lobbied against. Right. Um, when you look around at teenagers, a lot of Nike and Adidas on their body and their feet. As parents, we need to be, um, you know, mindful of what we're buying for them. At the same time, we also know kids get bullied if you have the wrong sneakers, sadly, nowadays. So right. what, what do you recommend we as consumers do? Because- that seems to be the only way these companies will get this message if they're not listening to Congress. Yeah, well, well, look, if you can, and I realize not everybody uh, doesn't have the time to do this, research your purchases. I, I mean, again, if, if you, I care like what my kids are eating or where we're eating out or what my dog is eating, just put in a little research into the other stuff that you're buying and you may change your mind or you may find an alternative. It's, it's as simple as that, but having that information is I think vitally important and also holding these companies to account. I think that's critically important because if they say that they're doing things in compliance with the law, let them testify to that under oath, under oath, uh, so that we can find out for once and for all um, what, what's happening and get to the bottom of this, Leslie. 
Speaking of, we're going to find out after the break once and for all uh, what the White House is doing and uh, specifically the White House and national security and what the national security advisor is saying that we're doing with regard to China. We'll be back with Scott. We'll be back with you right after this. Don't go away. Check out their website, AmericanManufacturing.org. Follow Scott on Twitter at Scott Paul AAM and follow the AAM at Keep It Made in USA. We'll be back with him with you right after this. Don't go away. We are back. I'm Leslie Marshall. He's Scott Paul. He's president of the Alliance for American Manufacturing. Check out their website, AmericanManufacturing.org. Follow them on Twitter at Keep It Made in USA and follow Scott at Scott Paul AAM. Scott, thank you for holding. uh, Welcome back. Uh, With regard to China, let's jump over to uh, the White House and not just Congress. Um, Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen, in a speech, said the United States was not seeking a winner-take-all competition with China. And another high-ranking Biden administration official backed that sentiment up. He said, our objective is not autarky, uh, that's National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan, um, busting up the thesaurus in his own speech uh, in the, uh, the, in the, uh, at a Washington, D.C. Uh, think tank. He said it's resilience and security in our supply chains. Um, this is, some people would say, part of the Biden administration's wider international economic agenda, but also part of a national security agenda. He did lay out the White House's reasoning for heavy domestic investment. And he said this, quote, that is the core of our economic approach to build, to build capacity, to build resistance, to build inclusiveness at home and with partners around the world. The capacity to produce and innovate and to deliver public goods like strong physical and digital infrastructure and clean energy at scale, the resilience to withstand natural disasters and geopolitical shocks, and the inclusiveness to ensure a strong, vibrant American middle class and greater opportunity for working people around the world All of that is part of what we have called a foreign policy for the middle class. And the first step is laying a new foundation at home with a modern American industrial strategy. Now, before we expand on his expansion of what a modern American industrial strategy uh, means, are you, as president of the AAM, on board so far with what he said, and if so, why? Yeah, yeah, I I absolutely think so, Leslie. Um, And... To, to me, and I'll, I'll explain why, and, and one of the reasons why I think it's important to, to lift this up is that uh, I think it's important for Americans to understand the rationale between the, uh, of these big investments that Congress and Biden have made in infrastructure or semiconductors or clean energy, and also kind of our foreign policy strategy with respect to China. I mean, they go hand in hand. We have to build up our own capacity uh, if we want to be an effective deterrent. Now, I'm going to disagree a little bit with uh, Secretary Yellen uh, in particular in that I think in some respects this is kind of a winner-takes-all strategy. I mean, you look what we're doing with semiconductor technology restrictions and and what's being placed on China. And I think they're right because for decades, China's been able to grow its technology sector by cutting and pasting our technology through theft, basically, through piracy, piracy and theft. And so... We're absolutely right to try to turn that spigot off and say, look, if you're going to do this, you're going to go it alone and you're going to have to develop that technology on your own. We're not, we're not going to help in any way. We're not going to let our companies help 
in any way let you do that. Meanwhile, we're going to invest tens of billions of dollars in our own technology to lift that up and get ahead. So I do think that it is kind of a competition that way, even if they're going to pretend like, uh, you know, it's not. But the other aspect of this that is so important is that um, it is uh, it is good and right that there is an active role for public policy in supporting our security and our foreign policy goals, and that we're not just guided by some philosophy like neoliberalism like we were in the past or the free market to see if this is going to happen or if it's not going to happen, because we've seen what happens there. And, and things have gotten out of hand, and it cost us jobs, it cost us capacity, um, and it cost us resilience. And those are exactly the things that uh, Jake Sullivan, the national security advisor, those issues was trying to lift up. And I thought he did a great job uh, of doing that. When he talks about modern American industrial strategy and expands on that, he said, quote, modern American industrial strategy identifies specific sectors that are foundational to economic growth, strategic from a national security perspective, and where private industry on its own isn't poised to make the investments needed to secure our national ambitions. It deploys targeted public investments in these areas that unlock the power and ingenuity of private markets, capitalism, and competition to lay a foundation for long-term growth. Um, and he said it helps enable American business to do what American business does best, innovate, scale, and compete. Mm -hmm. Can you speak to that? Yeah, I can. And, and Leslie, you've probably heard this before, because I know that you participate in these debates and conversations, and you're willing to, to, to do that with, uh, with folks on, on the other side of it, which I commend you for. More people need to do that. But like when we talk about this stuff, the, the response I typically hear is, well, Solyndra, right? I mean, you know, Solyndra. What happened with Solyndra? You know, Solyndra went bankrupt and there were tax dollars, blah, blah, blah. And actually it was a loan guarantee and, you know, we, we didn't really suffer taxpayer losses. And that same fund, by the way, also lifted up Tesla and made it an electric vehicle superpower. So there is going to be some of that. But, but what, what Sullivan's trying to explain here is that, that's not what this is about. This isn't about picking a winner or a loser. It is about identifying sectors of our economy that are key to our success, whether it is military, uh, uh, security, economic security, or rebuilding the middle class, and making sure we have a plan and, and making sure we're going to be able to do that. So we know that there's going to be tens of millions of electric vehicles that are going to be sold around the world in the coming years. The only question is, who's going to be making those? And Sullivan's like, we ought to be making those. We ought to be making those vehicles so that we have those good jobs so that we have that technology and we get the benefits, the climate benefits that everybody's looking for as well. Um, and so I think that's that, that's a big aspect of this, both explaining how it's going to impact uh, everyday life and how it's a shift from the past. And just the last thing that I will add here, and I thought this was very important, is that on trade policy, it's like, look, you know, people talk about free trade agreements you know, they they are very controversial and several of them have been very bad, very bad. So so to interrupt yeah. you here, because you read yeah. my mind on this, because yeah. he did speak on the administra administration's pause on trade agreements. And and he said when asked a question, the right, the right question is, how does trade fit into our international economic policy and what problems is it seeking to solve? So you agree with the pause on these trade agreements and you agree with the way he and the Biden administration are viewing this, correct? I absolutely do. I mean, our at any rate, our average tariff rates uh, 
are like somewhere between two and three percent. So that's not that's nominal, really. And and there's some outliers there. And obviously, we have some steeper tariffs on some Chinese products, uh, rightly so, because of the cheating. Uh, but but he's like going from two percent to zero percent. That might help big global companies at the margins, but it's not going to help American workers. Right. It's not really going to help American consumers. So let's have other priorities here. Let's figure out how we can realign our supply chain, get some of that production out of China, back to the United States, or shared with our allies so that we have more dependable sources uh, for key products uh, that we're going to need in the future. And I think articulating that was very, very helpful. And it is just such a sea change from past democratic administrations uh, that had supported free trade. And it's also a big sea change, quite honestly, from the Trump administration that just kind of, you know, lashed out and flailed out and knew it wanted to do something different, but couldn't quite articulate a strategy and did it in a way that was so alienating. Um, uh, to, to so many of our allies. And so I think this is a very rational strategy. And, uh, and I, I'm glad, again, that, you know, that, that he was able to articulate that. And look, I know this isn't like a kitchen table issue. This isn't something people aren't going to be sitting around a diner in Iowa talking about, you know, the ins and outs of, of trade policy like this, but they will feel it, you know. Right. I was going to say it should be a kitchen table issue because it right. really does affect those kitchen sure. table issues. Yeah. And do their kids have access to these opportunities? Is my community doing better? Are they spending money at the grocery store? And so that's where it's going to show up kind of indirectly. And so they can, you know, Biden can talk about infrastructure, the CHIPS Act, the clean energy manufacturing, and people will be like, oh, policy, policy, policy. But when you talk about it as a value, like, my kids are going to be better off, right? And, and there's going to be jobs, and that factory is going to come, and it's going to be awesome. I think that's what people will relate to. And so I think that's where you'll see kind of the tangible. Yeah, I mean, to say, hey, your, your town's not going to be a ghost town you know, anymore, right? right? People are going to be coming right. to buy things that you're selling and to eat at your restaurant and drink your coffee you know, at your mom-and-pop coffee shop. Um, it, less less the, fat home, more jobs. Yeah, yeah absolutely, absolutely. The U.S.-China relationship financially is worth hundreds of billions of dollars annually, right? Our relationship has grown pretty frosty. Some people say that relationship will inevitably deteriorate more in less than a minute. Agree or disagree? And, and does it matter? I, I think a lot of that is up to China um, and the steps that it takes, because our policy has been pretty, pretty, pretty consistent. Um, and... It is China kind of like inching closer to wanting to have aggression with Taiwan or, um, you know, making demands that are unreasonable or a lot of these human rights abuses and whether or not we're going to call them on that. And so I think we are right. I think we should look for opportunities when we can work together. But I think that we have to have a vigorous competition. And when we must, we have to confront them. And we have to be very realistic uh, about what that means as well, Leslie. Speaking of realistic, we're going to talk about the return of manufacturing to the U.S. It won't be without its challenges. Back with Scott Paul, president of the Alliance for American Manufacturing and you, right after this. We have returned with Scott Paul, president of the Alliance for American Manufacturing. I'm Leslie Marshall. On the website, uh, check it out. AmericanManufacturing.org is the place to go. Lots of really great information there. On Twitter, follow at Keep It Made in USA by following the AAM there. And follow Scott at Scott Paul AAM. 
Speaking of return, I'm sure you've seen a lot of headlines about the return of manufacturing. The AAM's Matthew McMullen wrote a great piece entitled The Return of Manufacturing to the United States Won't Be uh, Without uh, Challenges. Um, but we've seen, uh, Scott, and thank you for holding welcome back. We have seen great pieces and great stories from the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal examining what we have right now was really a boom in manufacturing. And it's been taking place over the past few years. It continues to grow. Um, and the ramifications for workers it affected uh, in industries. And, um, you know, and Matthew writes in his piece, both are worth your time to read. And I love, you know, the honesty here because, mm -hmm. you know, Yes, it's good, and not that there's bad, but there there are some challenges. Yeah. Um. So so let let's talk about some of these challenges, some of these ramifications for workers in these affected industries. Yeah, yeah. So it's a it's a great point, and one of the ways to think about this is that you know there will be some transitions that occur. For instance, when electric vehicles capture more of the market, there'll be less of a demand for combustion engine vehicles. Those engines have a lot more parts. It's a different skill set to put them together. Those factories, some of them will close down. I mean, there, there's just no avoiding that, but the EV factories will be scaling up. Now, on a job-per-job -job basis, it's probably going to net out about even if we get more of the supply chain jobs too, but but so but but that's one thing because there will be some transition there. The other thing that goes along with it is that it's a it's a different skill set that is needed, and so the workers that were coming from the combustion engine factory uh, may need a slightly different set of skills and training to work in the electric vehicle factory, uh, and so that will be another factor too. We've got to make sure that the the jobs are good, that the wages are good, that the benefits are good. But but it's it's it, I think it's worth. As, as proponents of all of this to kind of explain some of the factors that we're looking at. And we're also looking at a new workforce. And Leslie, I'm sure you have seen this or have thought about this too, is that a bunch of folks in manufacturing, it's very kind of like weighted towards guys who are in their late 40s and 50s mm -hmm. who probably don't have kids at home, don't have to worry about childcare. They're gonna be cycling out. The, the new folks coming into manufacturing are younger, they're gonna have families, they're gonna have childcare concerns, and that's gonna be a much, much bigger deal uh, than it had been just because childcare is so damn expensive everywhere to right. try, try to take care of. And so employers are gonna have to kind of build that in where in manufacturing, they never did before. No manufacturer ever thought, really, quite honestly, about do I need to think about childcare for the employees? And so, that's going to shift as well. And so um, th these are a lot of the factors that folks are, are going to be looking at, in addition to just the fact of, of like uh, demographics, is that some of these some of these plants are going in to labor markets where the unemployment rate is already low. And so there will be competition for for workers there. And, and so that that will be another factor to look at. But and, and I'm glad that you pointed out uh, Matt's great writing in this piece because she says these are good problems to have. You know, it's better than worrying about what's going to happen when the factory closes down and it's just going to be replaced by a dollar store. That's it, which is unfortunately what we've seen over the last couple of decades. This mm -hmm. is 
something that that I think we have imagined was possible for a long time, and I, you know, I think we're going to finally see it uh, roll out over the next couple of years. The U.S. Census Bureau data showed that construction spending on manufacturing, like building factories, reached $108 billion, with a B, dollars last year. That's a record high. Now, there are a lot of reasons, and, you know, I, I don't, for anybody who lost somebody during the pandemic, I, I don't want to minimize that at all. Uh, but this is partially a direct result of COVID, right? You know, people yeah. were like, we don't want that you know, a uh, supply chain issue. Um, so we're going to build, you know, the factory here. So this is something that is good that came out of the pandemic, at least when it comes to manufacturing and job creation, right? Yeah, there's not, right. From a health perspective, there's not a lot of silver linings here, right? Um, uh, you know, particularly for folks who suffered losses. From a from an economic or a policy perspective, one of the things that we, have, I think, at least learned is that we can't be that exposed again and that vulnerable and, and experience that kind of like whipsaw effect uh, in our in our economy. It really can't stand it for a long period of time. And so I think that lesson uh, has been absorbed. And so I think um, not completely, but but I think it's starting to get absorbed. And I think it's been boosted along by this policy, you know, where if you have $1.2 trillion going into making our infrastructure better, or if you have hundreds of uh, billions of dollars going into clean energy manufacturing loans and tax incentives uh, for companies, or if you have 50 to $60 billion going into semiconductor uh, uh, manufacturing that's going to that's gonna, um, leverage you know, even more private sector investment. That's going to make a that's going to be a noticeable difference in the number of factories mm -hmm. that are going to coming online. So you see it all over the place. I mean, and you see it in in just about every state too. I mean, I have examples from you know California to Maine and Florida to Washington of where this has just been transformative uh, in a lot of these uh, smaller communities. Um, and and just the last thing I'll I'll say about that thread is that I'm old enough to remember when we were told by the economists and the experts, well, there's never going to be another big factory, you know, coming to the United States again. It's all going to be, yeah, it's all going to be robots or it's all going to be made in China, but, but it's not going to happen. And so they're wrong. They're totally wrong. And so you're seeing this, this revolution um, and, and we're just at the very cusp of it. So the one thing we don't want to do is roll it back. And that's what Republicans want to try to do as part of this debt deal, by the way, is get rid of these yep. uh, incentives for clean energy would be a huge, big mistake, including for red states, too. And, yeah. and in a lot of ways, especially for red states, where a lot of this investment has been taking place. You know, one of the things, there's a company, Future Stitch, that was actually featured in both the Wall Street Journal and uh, the, the, the Times uh, article, um, and interesting, something that I didn't even think about as a consumer is that to have your factory physically closer to your retailers um, is not only a money saver, but can be a headache saver as well. Yeah. Yeah, that's exactly right. It's like if you need to make changes in your supply chain or if there's a quality issue or if there's a response, if there's a change in demand uh, you can respond much more nimbly and quickly and effectively to this in a way that may save your business. 
and also make your customers happy. And so it is so much easier to do that than to try to figure it out when you have a supply chain flung all over the world and you're, you're 12 hours away in terms of your time zones for trying to make calls or, or, or change things up. And it, it angers me that it took us two or three decades for people to figure this out when it's kind of common sense that you want to make things uh, close to where you're selling them and right. you'll have more control over the process and fewer of these hiccups, Leslie. You, you had talked about a different skill set and people who are getting older have older kids um, and, and, you know, they're going to retire over the next 10 or 20 years or maybe even five years. Um, but that could work, you know, to the benefit of these companies, because a lot of these younger people coming in are taught or are knowledgeable in some of these skill sets yeah. that maybe some of the older employees are not. Right. Yeah. The advantage is you're going to get you know, probably workers with digital literacy, which is going to be yeah. very important uh, in all of this. The disadvantage, right. especially is, going from gasoline to electric vehicles. Yeah. Yeah. The disadvantage is that you might be in a job where you have to do eight hours of shift work and you can't look at your device or something like that. And that's going to be <laughs> massive, a, a massive shift. Kind of like a teenager being in the school <laughs> that doesn't allow their phones. Yeah. And so, so, but, but th this raises a good point is that Employers are going to have to approach this a lot differently, um, and 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 again, meet workers kind of where they are, uh, you know, in in some ways. And and again, childcare is going to be a big piece of this. I, I think that's going to be very very important to the success of making all of this happen. Is that you know, the employers are going to have to rethink how they're offering benefit uh, benefits and, and training workers as well. Scott, thank you for being with us. As always, time just flies. Uh, learned a lot again, and I know that our listeners and our viewers uh, did as well. Listening on radio, listening on podcasts, listening on stream. Um, thank you uh, for joining us there. Watching us on uh, you know, uh, YouTube Live, Facebook Live, on Twitter, whatever they're calling it now. Uh, I'll call it Twitter Live, uh, LinkedIn Live. The list goes on. I'm Leslie Marshall. He's Scott Paul, president of the Alliance for American Manufacturing. Check out the website, AmericanManufacturing.org. Go to Twitter. Follow them there, at Keep It Made in USA. If you want to do that, folks, we control that with our consumers. And follow Scott at Scott Paul, AAM.